Well, we're on a series called Revive, and in our series on revival, I, I want to put some hope in you today, and I want to I put some hope into you with this concept that revival is, is coming. Now, when I say something like this, that revival, a great move of the Spirit, God doing things that we didn't think He was able to do because maybe things are too far gone, I know some of you are going to think, Bob, you're just way too optimistic, and I've been accused of that before. I'd rather be accused of being an optimist than being a pessimist. Somehow optimism seems to side more with faith and hope and a good God. Pessimism seems to just like God's fed up with you, he's done, okay, he just wants to take you to the woodshed and you know, that's all he wants to do. I just don't want to side with that. I'm, I'm into winning. You know, we played a game on, on Thanksgiving night, I might refer to later on in this sermon, we did a... Brian did a great game on triv uh, trivial pursuit type of thing and tough questions. You get the vet points and all sorts of stuff. And I chose all the, oh, that's right. Yes, Elizabeth, thank you. It's Elizabeth wants recognition that she won that game. <laughs> and what I was going to say before she interrupted me was uh, is that my team consisted of all the Schrader kids, okay? So it was me and my, my, my tribe against all the adults. And I thought we competed toe-to-toe -to -toe and we went for it. But I, I don't play, I hate playing a game just to play a game. Like the ungame is the worst thing anybody's ever created. <laughs> what, 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 what game without competition is fun? I mean, and so when you do that, one of my MOs, I trash talk, I make it dramatic, and you know, I act really cocky and those things. And, and we almost won. But I, I like winning, and I like a winning God. And I like a God when Satan and, and Lucifer and, and, and Isaiah 14 said, I will, I will, I will. God said, yeah, you, you have five I wills, I'll have five wounds to redeem men. I will, I will end this rebellion. God's, God's a winner, okay? God's a winner. And so God's going to win. And so some people think, well, Bob, you know, you're just... You're just too optimistic, or you, you, you're not, you know, you're ignoring the signs of the times. And look, Bob, once culture slides, it, it never comes back. And yeah, the church is becoming more and more irrelevant to people. And yeah, there's a spirituality in the land, but it's about, it's individual. And it seems like the church is compromising in every area and going on and on and on. And a lot of people actually feel incredibly overwhelmed that everything's changing and your world is lost. And so you might be asking yourself maybe a question like this, like, God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of America? But, you know, you know, when God's looking down on the globe, he's not just looking at America. When God's looking down on the globe, he's just not working in America. Well, again, America is the key to everything. Scripture and verse. Now, I believe very strongly that we have received a grace and a, and a stewardship, but... God is limited by America. You're going to tell me God's limited by America. Now, do I believe there's a future for America? Yes, I do. But God's working around the globe. God's doing a number of wonderful things. And he's working in the United States of America. I hope I can encourage you today in that realm. But maybe you're just thinking, you know, my kids are just interested in Christ. And, you know, the, the polar ice caps are melting. And the Russians are messing around with our elections. And... You know, we got horrible shootings, and we do, and they're horrible, and, you know, and, and Fox News says this, and CNN says this, and conservatives don't like liberals, and liberals don't like conservatives, and, you know, it's just, it's, everything's just kind of spinning out of control and all coming to the end, and 
I just, I just am confused and overwhelmed and depressed and anxious. And, you know, what am I, I come to church to maybe get a little bit of a crumb of hope. Well, we serve a God a little bit better than that. So I want to talk about at the beginning here when God and times do not make sense. And I'm going to take you to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. And I'm going to give a little background here on Habakkuk because and I want to say this. God is going to revive his church. Now, we have said this over and over again. It doesn't mean he's going to revise methodology. Culture shifts. Methods become ineffective sometimes, and new methods are created. So when God brings revival, it may not look to you always like it's revival because sometimes we get stuck on methods that we think are sacred. But if you compare the church, especially I'm talking to my boomers and builder buddies here, okay, all of us who are born in the 40s and the 50s, if we look at the church that we just think was the great glory movements of the 1970s and the early 80s, and you compare that church to the church of the 1890s, the people of the 1890s looking at us thought we were backslidden. Okay, I can show you writings that would hate everything that took place on the stage today and hated everything we did in the 70s. Okay, it's just the church changes, the culture changes, methods change, but God doesn't change. Come on, His truth or so truth is constant, methods change. And so we got to make sure that we got the proper perspective that we're allowing God to make this look like the way He wants this to look like. I mean, Jesus didn't look like to John the Baptist what John the Baptist predicted Jesus to look like. He sent his disciples, and go ask him, he's in jail, go ask him, are you the coming one, or do we look for somebody else? Okay, John's confused. He was the one who said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you know, I, I don't know who this is, except I see the Spirit falling on like dove falling out of heaven. John sees that, <coughs> but when Jesus is doing his ministry, John's extremely confused. What Jesus did in Luke 7, he didn't say a word to the disciples. He turned around and he just healed everybody. And he goes to his disciples, go back to tell John what just took place. The blind see. The deaf hear. Lepers are cleansed. The lame walk. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And, and happy are those who are not offended in me. That's powerful. Sometimes we've got expectations what this looks like. And God will do it a little bit different maybe than what our expectation is. But that doesn't mean God's not working. So I just want to brace you that God's doing something positive. Now, let's talk about Habakkuk here. The prophet Habakkuk found himself in the same circumstances and state of mind as many of us sometimes. And we're just kind of looking at our, our world as the church today. The nation of Babylon had established itself as a world power. The power before that was the Assyrians. And they just began over decades to dilapidate and finally the Babylonians defeated them and they drove Egypt they drove Egypt past the Tigris River back into Egypt and that's really important because the current king at this time Jehoiakim had made himself a vassal of Egypt so as long as we got Egypt we're secure isn't that interesting where we find our security as long as I got Egypt I'm okay well how about if I just have God I'm okay but there was a leaning on this because they didn't have God Israel was in a decrepit condition. The king that was put in there 
His brother was taken away from Egypt, and he was put in there, and he, he, he shed innocent blood. He, he wanted to build big palaces. He, there was no justice. There was violence in the streets, and there, the whole Judean culture has fallen to pieces. There's, there's false prophets. There's immorality that's rampant, and, and not only do you have the Babylon, Babylonians ready to come at you, you got your own Judah. You got your own little section of what's left of Israel. They, they don't want to have a covenant commitment with God and it's a dark day and in comes this prophet named Habakkuk who's a or Habakkuk who is a contemporary of Jeremiah and they're both prophesying at the same time and he's asking some questions so he starts off by saying this the oracle the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw now an oracle is a prophetic burden and it usually meant judgment it could be also a very very positive prophetic burden he has this prophetic burden O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How many people have ever prayed that? Lord, I've been crying for help and I don't see anything from your hand. You ever, have you ever felt that before? Okay, this, is, this is in the Bible. This guy didn't have much faith. No, he comes, he lands with great faith. You see, his faith is raw faith. His faith is real faith. His, his faith is tested faith. And he goes, or cry to you, violence, because violence was all around him in Judea. And you will not save. And why do you make me see iniquity? Come on, and why do you idly look at wrong? Come on, do something about this thing. God, do something about this thing. Do something about the church. Do something about America. Do something about the world. Do something. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. No one's obeying it. No one's responding to it. And justice never goes forth because the law is not being exercised. And so we have injustice in the land. Where the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Judah was in a bad spiritual state. Now, question, have you ever asked that? As I asked before, God, where are you? Where are you in my life? Where are you in the church? Where are you in the nation? Come on, where, where are you, Lord? What about the great harvest we heard about in past moves of God? Our parents, maybe you're a millennial. My, my parents talked about the Jesus people movement or the charismatic movement. Or maybe if you were a boomer, you heard those who were, were in the meetings with Jack Coe and A.A. Allen and William Branham and the latter rain movement, great waves of power. Jack Coe lined up 103 people in wheelchairs and he just came and he pulled like 60 plus of them right out of the wheelchair and they all walked okay now he did leave about 35 stranded and we don't know what really happened there but 60 60 plus cut out that could have been a bad scene all right but you can say wow look what he did to those 35 but look what he did for those 60 plus it wasn't clean but there was a the power of god was present i asked dick iverson about it i said brother dick you know how did you how did you How'd you get involved in the healing ministry? You just, you just jumped in the river, he said. Just, it was just power was just there. It was the power of God was present in a powerful way. It went for like 15 years, and all of a sudden it hit the Catholic Church and denominations. And I mean, things were going around all over the place, just wild, radical things. And I, I, I was born again in a church where people got out of wheelchairs and blind eyes were open, and, and, and people spoke in languages of knowing languages in the world, and it was just like the book of Acts all over again. I mean, God, where are you in all this? Where were you like the Azusa revival or 
they had on the walls crutches and braces and there's two testimonies of a man who had no leg, a stump, and it actually holds from the stump all the way to his toe. A whole leg grew in a foot. Another, an arm from a stub, the right arm, grew all the way out to the fingers. Incredible testimonies. And some of these who saw these things went out and touched the nations for the next 50 years. God, where, where, where are you? We're like, we're like Gideon. Where are the miracles of our forefathers? And, and come on, don't you see what's, what's taking place here? And, and we find ourselves... In these tough questions. But God replies to him, as we're going to see here in a second. And you know, I've had a number of times where I've cried out to God with honest questions in my own personal life. Where, man, I, I, I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. God, I don't know where you're at. And I find that when I cry out with sincerity, God answers me. I'll never forget, it was 1983. Sue and I had moved to Portland to go to Bible college. We never quite got across the river. We, we housed out and over where Randy and, and Chris Ziegler lived now. We, we housed out a year, and I used all our money we had left to go to Bible college because I wanted to learn the Word of God. And, you know, we're kind of at the end of that year. We're kind of penniless. We don't know what we're going to do. I'm kind of at the end of myself. And it was all exciting when we came down, but we ran hard and kind of went empty. And I remember they, they hired me for the summer to work on, such, on, on construction. They had a lot of work to do on the property up on Rocky Butte. And, and uh, I had gone home one night, and I just cried out all the way on 205 over the bridge. Just, God, why did you bring me here? Why did you bring me here? Why did you bring me here? I got home, and I went, went to bed. I just said to Sue, I said, I don't know why God's brought us here. I'm just asking God, why did you bring us here? I mean, that was my question. Next day, next day, very next day, I'm on the, what's called the water tower, way up there in Rocky Butte. It kind of supplies the whole campus, and I'm putting tar on it. One of the elders climbs up a ladder in his suit and walks over to me, and he says, I just came from the office of Dick Iverson, and he wanted me to tell you something. The reason God brought you here is to work with the youth of this church. Okay answers that question. <laughs> and I eventually became the youth pastor of that church. Hey, when you're crying out sometimes, God will just come to you and he's going to give you an answer. And so, here he is. Habakkuk, you idly look at wrong. He goes on to say, destruction and violence are before me and strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So, Justice goes forth perverted. And God answers him this. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded from doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That's God's reply. I'm doing much more than you think. You don't think I'm working, but I'm, I'm doing a work. I'm working, Habakkuk. I'm working. You're, you're going to be astounded with what I'm doing? And it's going to be incredible. Now, I'm doing some judging right now because he's bringing Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian horde right upon a little nation called Judah. It doesn't look good. I'm doing some house cleaning right now. I'm bringing, I'm, I'm bringing some pruning. You're going to be disciplined. A lot of you are going to get hauled off to Babylon. It's going to be a tough, it's going to be a little bit of a tough time, but it's okay because what I'm doing is I'm rearranging things. 
I'm rearranging kings, I'm rearranging nations, and I'm getting ready to restore you. And then out of that, I'm going to start restoring some other things. You're going to purge idolatry from you, and then I'm going to remove some more nations. I'll set up a kind of a nation I'll use as my puppet. It's going to be a cruel nation. But they're going to kind of set things up for me to give the world my son. And when he comes... There's going to be a message called the gospel that's going to touch the nations. I'm going to do a work in your day that though it were told you, you would not believe it. Paul quotes this. This is in a synagogue in another city called Antioch. There were two of them. He's in a synagogue. His message of the gospel is being resisted by those who are hearing him. And he says these words. Verse 40, Acts 13. Watch out then that what is spoken about by the prophets, does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work you would never believe, even if someone tells you. Paul applies it to the spreading of the gospel. And it doesn't look like things are going well, but that doesn't mean God's not working. That doesn't mean God's not ready to do a great work. That's the problem with God being in heaven and us being on earth. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And sometimes we feel kind of alienated with what you're doing, but we can get to a place where we can trust. And of course, Habakkuk, he responds now, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. So even in the midst of that, I believe he's saying there's two different interpretations, but God, you're going to preserve your people through all this. But then he wrestles with the ways of God. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. All of a sudden he gets a little bit negative here. This is a raw, raw conversation here. Why do you idly look at traitors and, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You know, sometimes we, we ask God this, really, God? I know you work all things for good, but, but really? You're working all things for good through him? You're working all things for good through her? You're working all things for good through these circumstances? Really, Lord? I mean, you're a pure eyes to look upon this thing. And you would use, you would use evil? to bring about good? I can't handle this. He's wrestling with this. Sometimes we dismiss the very instrument sometimes that God uses. And the Lord answers him because the Lord loves us as we heard today prophetically. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. You know, some of you sometimes have prophetic words, and we don't have you give it. We want you to write it down. You feel like that's like secondhand prophecy. No, he said, I want you to write down the prophecy, and I want you to get it in the hand of who's, who's going to run with it, this to read it to people. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Come on, there's an appointed time for God to do certain things. Galatians 4.4 4 says, in the fullness of time. In other words, it was right on schedule. God gave, sent forth his son. In the fullness of time. Come on, it, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. 
Come on, people. God watches over his word to perform it. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Talking about the Babylonians. But notice this. Come on, it's not right within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. What's God saying? God's response is, come on, Habakkuk, you and the people need to get a prophetic vision for what I'm about to do. You need to have a prophetic perspective. I remember vividly in the 1980s that there was a lot of prophetic activity talking about a new work and what we knew at the time as the Soviet Union bloc. Dick Eastman would fly all the way over to Berlin, in West Berlin. He would go all the way up to the Iron Curtain and begin to intercede for it to fall down. Many intercessors did. Ernest Gentile was in a, in, a, in a church in Salem. I think it was Mike Heron's church. And he talked to this guy. I see you taking Bibles into what was the Soviet Union. And I see you going in and out without any hindrance. My own eyes at Bible Temple. We had David Schock prophesying over a couple from Finland. And he said, six months before it took place, I'm going to rip three ribs out of the mouth of the bear. Estonia, Lithuania, and, and Latvia will be liberated from the Soviet Union. A great revival will take place in the Baltic nations that will flow into Russia. It happened within six months. So all of a sudden, all these prophetic things. Now, there were books and books and books, you know, Gog and Magog and all these, and they're going to be coming like a hook in their mouth. They're going to be coming around this, and everyone had their charts together. And all of a sudden... I'm going to do a work in your day that though it were told you, you would not believe it. I just had my knee reconstructed. I was in the hospital. I was 35 years old. I mean, it was full of Dramamine. I was doped. All of a sudden on the TV, Czechoslovakia, Poland, you know, Austria-Hungary. They're just claiming their independence like every three or four hours Romania, some of you remember that. In Romania, they were shouting by the thousands in the street <coughs> about God being their king and, and, and chanting God's name, and, and we're turning back to that. The Jachuis will tell you all about what took place there. And so all of a sudden, overnight, this work took place. And God did a work that shocked the world. I remember watching ABC 2020, and they were doing this thing of, all these young people and a big crowd of people that were knocking off the wall and chipping it away in the new day. And in the background, I could hear a group of people in German on ABC 2020 singing this song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. Remember that old song? Yeah, those are the good old days, right? <laughs> no one else probably on watching 2020 would recognize that song unless you were a believer at the time. But they were rejoicing that the day of the Lord was bringing down a wall to bring the message of the gospel to the Soviet bloc. God did a work that though were told us we would not believe it. I want you to write this vision down. I want you to give it to him who's going to run with it. And I want you to know that there's pride all around you, there's self-sufficiency all around you, but I want you to know something. The righteous lives by his faith. The this particular verse, the, 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 the just shall live by faith, the whole New Testament hangs on that verse. Paul said this, For the gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Luther, in, in, in meditating over the book of Romans in, in his own commentary, said, I used to think that righteousness was acts of obedience that I did, but I, I recognized by this verse that by the sheer mercy of God and nothing that I've personally done, God has shown me mercy because of my faith. How are we going to live when everything's like a washing machine and storms are all around us and life doesn't make sense? You know how we're going to live? We're going to live by our faith. We're going to live by a faith that says God's in control. We're going to live by the faith that God is on the throne of the universe. We're going to live by a faith that he has spoken in his word. He watches over his word to perform it. We're going to live by faith that God is building the church. We're going to live by the faith as we sang over and over and over again like a mantra that he's good. And he's going to bring about good. Now his good isn't your comfortable feelings all the time. His good is landing his plane and landing his plan. And which is ultimately for your good. We've got to hang on to this in the middle of confusing times. We live by his faith. And then all of a sudden, I love this, because something happens in the prophet who's having this two-way conversation with God. He starts getting some good old-fashioned Holy Ghost sassiness. Good old cockiness. Good old little bit, a little feistiness against the day he lives in. And he says to this, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Can these idols really guide you? It is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath in it at all. I mean, at all in it. But the Lord, this is, this is the prophet talking. He's talking to his circumstances around him. But the Lord, in his holy, is, is, is in his holy temple. Come on. He is presiding over the universe. He is omnipresent around the world, and he is powerfully present in the church. And you know what? He's filled me. The Lord is in his holy temple. He's had a little attitude here. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Come on, he's Lord. And then he goes to this famous verse in the great resolution of faith. What does faith look like? This is what faith looks like that the just live by no matter what the circumstances. We used to sing this years ago. Though the fig tree should not blossom, no fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Come on. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I'm going to give this to the choir master, and let's play this on a 10-stringed instrument. Come on. Now, was there a bunch of good stuff happening? No. They were just getting ready to go to the woodshed. But that was his attitude. That was his attitude. So the question is this. What we learn from Habakkuk that will sustain us during the time in which we live. A few things. One is that he pursued to know the God of the universe rather than the God of a popular theology. We've got a lot of popular theology out these days. A lot of things being shared. God is trendy. 
I want you to know God is not trendy. God has a lot of now things that he does, absolutely. He does things now that maybe he didn't do in times past, that's true, but God's not trendy. I'm the Lord, I do not change. From everlasting to everlasting, he's God. He's not Johnny come, you know, what do you call it? Johnny come Johnny, no, Johnny come, God, Johnny come lately. I'm working on my idioms. He's not a Johnny come lately God, he's the everlasting God. Well, it, you know, life is about me. My life. No, life really isn't about you. Life is about his glory. God just wants me to be blessed and comfortable. No, he doesn't. He wants you to be like Jesus. And he'll make you uncomfortable to make you like Jesus. Not because he's cruel, because he knows ultimately you'll be blessed becoming like Jesus. He's out for my good, but just it's about his glory. We get this reversed, we're going to get off. This thing called the gospel is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of God. You know, God doesn't judge. He just comes and he, and he just loves us. Now, I agree 100% with Ben, and I loved his analogy about the fire hose today. Because it is, God loves you that intensely. But guess what? God loves you that intensely not to keep you where you're at. Isn't it interesting? He said to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom you're well pleased. Next thing we know, we got Jesus in the wilderness with all the wild beasts without food for 40 days. And though he were a son, he learned obedience to the things he suffered. In other words, he didn't become obedient. He proved his obedience in testing. We've got to become like Jesus. That's what God, so he wasn't into popular theology. He was into the God of the universe theology. Second thing we learned from Habakkuk, is willing to question God in an honest two-way relationship. Come on, this was honest to God communication. Honest to God. His faith was raw. It was honest. But you know what he did in his faith? He rallied. You ever read the Psalms? You know, the Psalms are just not always, I'm just confessing a great confession today. You know, they landed in confessions after about 10 verses of, where are you, God? Jesus on the cross. Quote Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's raw stuff. It's questioning stuff. It's, it's tested stuff. It's stuff that makes steel out of Christians. That's the type of faith Habakkuk had. His faith was raw, but he rallied. Third thing this teaches us is that he models for us that faith and facts do not always agree. And that's true about the church's journey. Bobby talk about a victorious church and you talk about God's building his church and God is in his church and I see this and I see that. Come on, sometimes faith and facts don't always agree. I mean, I, I work, Bill Shiler works, we work with hundreds of pastors around the world. We, we get to hear horror stories all the time. It's not always pretty. But you know what? There's a silver lining in all that. You can just see the work and the grace of God where he's building, adding, growing, moving, we're in war. We're in war. You know, I always tell you stories of the American, American Civil War, but when Ulysses S. Grant, and I forget what contest he had, his first contest against Robert E. Lee, he lost. He came out of his tent, all his generals are standing there who are used to engaging Lee and disengaging and retreating. And so he got out of his tent, what, what are we going to do? Where are we going to retreat? We're not going to retreat. Let's move forward. 
That's what we do. When we get hit, we're going to move forward. Okay? We have a casualty, we move forward. We have a setback, we move forward. It doesn't look good, we move forward. Because we are, the just shall live by what? Faith. That's why we move forward. The fourth thing is they receive prophetic perspective and, and, and resolve and resolved faith through a doubt, prayer, and question process. It's okay for us to sometimes question things. You want to be prophetic? People, I want to hear the voice of God. Well, first, you got to know God theologically. You got to know the nature of God, who God is, to know, to really discern His voice. But also, what you got to do, you got to walk in His shoes. You got to experience His suffering. You got to go through experiences where God proves himself to us. And you got to go to the prayer closet where he digs out your ear and, he, and you ask those questions and he answers those questions and, he, and you dig deep in those things and you'll become prophetic. It's not class. I'm going to give you a class and you become more prophetic. It requires you to dig in relationship. The word of the Lord comes out of intimacy, out of the dealings of God in my life and your life. Now listen, the church has been here before. What we face right now in the days that we live, this is not the first time the church has ever faced something like this. I want to talk to you a little bit because I have, a, I have a, actually a boundary on me, on my history. I've got to be careful. You can, you can talk this much about history, but you may not choke the people. <laughs> the second awakening. Second great awakening. Now, a lot of people know about the great awakening prior to the American Revolution, but they know very little about social history from the time of 1785 up to the time of maybe the American Civil War. And what happened after the, after the American Revolution, America just basically turned their back on God. It was a horrible time. And I'm going to explain a little bit how bad it was. Oh, it was a little bit bad. No, it was terribly bad. It was almost like the candle of any witness of any form of revival was completely taken out. We were in a bad place. What happened in the 1800s was the most massive social reform that ever took place in the history of the United States. There were thousands of churches birthed and hundreds of preachers raised up. And, and the church, the church increased its attendance and the number of people a thousand percent. Thousands of churches were started. And then out of that came great social reform, child labor laws. The advancement of women. All the women said amen. Came out of a revival. That's where really suffrage began. Began in the church. Dealing with anti-slavery laws and hospital reform and American Bible Society, public education, making sure everyone gets education. All these things came out of a revival that transformed the United States from 1800 to the American Civil War so much that you may not know this, but we were called the Benevolent Empire. But not before 1800. What happened after the American Revolution? Well, here's some statistics I'm going to read to you. And you know what? You're going you're to say, Bob, where'd you get those notes? I'm going to tell you exactly where you can find this article. And I know the sources that they use, so this is reliable history. It's a, it's a website called Beautiful Feet. You can look it up. But listen to this. Listen Listen to this statistic of what we were like from about the 1780s to 1800. During the last decade of the century, 1790 on, out of a population of 5 million Americans, 6% were confirmed drunkards. Crime had grown to such an extent that bank robberies were a daily occurrence. 
Women did not go out at night for fear of assault. The Methodists were losing 4,000 members per year. The Baptists said that they had their most wintry season. In a typical congregational church, the Reverend Samuel Shepherd of Lenox, Massachusetts, in 16 years had not taken one young person into the fellowship. 16 years without seeing one young person give their life to Christ. The Lutherans were so languishing that they discussed uniting with Episcopalians who were even worse off. Oh, that's, this is not, this is God we trust. Yeah. The Protestant Episcopal Bishop of New York quit functioning. He had confirmed no one for so long. He had confirmed no one for so long that he decided he was out of work, so he took up another employment. The Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall, wrote to the Bishop of Virginia, James Madison. Now, that may confuse you. Bishop of Virginia. Do you understand something about states and federal government in the late 18th century, early 19th century? When we said that the government shall not respect the, the establishment of religion thereof, that was the federal government. And a lot of people don't realize that states had their own denominations. For instance, Massachusetts... The state of Massachusetts paid congregational ministers' salaries all the way up to 1835. And so you would have a bishop over the state, and it was recognized because it was a federal government. They didn't want a national denomination, but they had it in states. Now, that kind of evolved into something else, yeah, but just so you understand the context. So John Marshall writes James Madison that the church was, was too far gone ever, listen to this, too far gone ever to be redeemed. Where have you heard that before? Too far gone to ever get it back. This is 1790-something. Voltaire, the French philosopher, said that Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years' time. I want to go on record 100 years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's home to publish Bibles that spread all over Europe. Church historian Kenneth Latteret said this, it seemed as if Christianity were about to be ushered out of the affairs of men, and only, listen to this, only 5% of Americans in 1790 had formal ties to churches. Today, in all the stuff that the church is losing grip, and the church is going down, and no one wants the church, 20% of Americans are in church today. 5% of Americans affiliated with the church. Well, that's not the America that I heard about. It was dark. It was dark. It gets worse. Deism and humanistic philosophies, the Enlightenment, were blanketing Europe and the United States with universities being saturated with his teachings. Anti-Christian writings were circulated in America. The Revolutionary War hero, Ethan Allen, published the book Reason, the Only Oracle of Man. And Thomas Paine, in 1794, wrote The Age of Reason. Both books worked to strip away the foundation built on the authority of God's word and ridiculed the Old and New Testament as being unworthy of a good God. Concerning the Bible, Payne went so far as to say it would be more consistent that we called it the word of a demon than the word of God. Harvard did not have a single Christian in its entire student body. Princeton only had two believers. Williams College conducted a mock communion service. Dartmouth students conducted an anti-Christian play. Well, I want to hear that in the history books. It was dark. Everyone just said, bad God, we're going to become humanists. 5% of Americans were tied to a church. 
5%. And then all of a sudden, there's a revival that takes place. A revival that just begins to shake. A little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. All of a sudden, it doesn't happen overnight. All of a sudden, people are going to Bible college. People are, you know, Yale becomes a, a, a school of theology. All these preachers started going out west. There was a great revival called the Cane Ridge, Cane Ridge Kentucky Revival. And thousands of people in the frontier giving their life to Christ. And all of a sudden, there was social reform. And all of a sudden, benevolence is taking place. And the love of Jesus, as we heard about today, that we're called to be people of love. And God loves us and we love people. It started happening where we became the, the benevolent empire. Yeah, it led eventually to the American Civil War. Yeah, we came into a conflict, but we can't dismiss that God did something by the Spirit. All of north of Erie Canal was called the Burnt Over District, where Charles Finney preached and a half a million people came to Christ. They said 80%, 85% of those people never turned away from their faith. Now, he had horrible theology, but he prayed them into the kingdom. And so his extraordinary prayer took place. There was a three-year period where there was a concert of prayer. People are beginning to pray. For instance, in 1770, only 20, there were only 20 Methodist churches. By 1860, there were 19,000 Methodist churches. Come on, we have, the, we have the American Bible Society, the American Sunday School Union, the American Tract Society, the American Home Missionary Society, the ch where there's child labor reform, women's rights advances, public education established, over and over and over again. This all came out of anti-slavery movement, prison reform only with reduction in brutal punishment, insane asylum reform for better treatment for the mentally ill, the founding of many colleges, and state-supported universities were started. Wow. That all came out of the church that only 5% of Americans were a part of in 1790. But it was being mocked. Age of reason. God's a demon God. See, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Because Habakkuk said, he is on his throne. Let everybody be silent. Five things to remember. I need the worship team to come on up here. Five things that we need to remember when the church is surrounded by darkness. One, Jesus taught that the kingdom of God would always have mixture prior to his coming. One of the things that really, really hurts us is a purist idealism. What do you mean Jesus said there was mixture in the kingdom? Look at the Matthew 13 parables. There is soil, which only one type of soil is good. There's thorny ground soil, wayside, like it's so hard the seed can't even get into it. There's, there's stony ground where no depth. There's one with weeds that chokes the life out of the seed. There's one good soil, mixture. How about the wheat and the tares? Let both grow together. The master plants one, his enemy plants the other. Come on, we see the kingdom of God growing like a, like a little, like a, like a mustard seed. You can hardly see it. And, and of course, Christianity started small, but they began to spread. And then it says the, the fowl, the birds of the air, find their nest. And so there's some demons around. Come on, wherever God's moving, there's demons around. Wherever God's m moving, God's, Satan's strategy is, I, I won't, if I can't beat him, I'll join him. There's a dragnet, and out of it comes that dragnet, comes good fish and bad fish. There's, there's, there's mixture in the, in the present state of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that was going to take place. But the just live by what? 
The just live by what? Come on, write, get a vision, write it down. Come on, I'm going to do a work that though you were told, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. It's already happened in our time. He's going to do it again. God, second thing is God is sovereign. Come on, he is sovereign. He's over this whole thing. He's over this whole thing. It may not look like he's in control, but he's in control. And he's out to win. Third thing is Jesus is building his church, but we're not always aware of it. You know, we played this trivia game. We had teams and everything at Thanksgiving, and Brian did such a great job. There's a bonus question at the end, and had the five different world religions. It had, it had, you know, Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and all other religions put together. And you're supposed to stack them in order. You know, what is the, the largest religious movement in the world? Well, the answer is Christianity. You may not know that. But if you go to Pew Research, they say that is true. But what's happening is that, is that Muslims are having more children than Christians. And so by 2050, there'll be more Muslims than, than Christians. But what they don't take into consideration is that thousands of Muslims are coming to Jesus right as we speak. I mean, we, we got to understand this, that we have an opportunity with even the, our, our Muslim friends that are in our country to befriend them and win them to Jesus. And I'm not here to say there shouldn't be security issues and, you know, yeah, there seems to be terrorism out of that. I'm not here to whitewash anything. But I am here to say we may have an opportunity to win people to Jesus. Okay, I might want to say we might want to change our glasses a little bit to have a little bit of an optimistic gospel that maybe God's trying to bring a revival. I'm talking about thousands. They say there's 3,000 born-again Christians at Tehran University alone. When I work with the underground church of Iran, I work, I, I know the stories. They're like, they're like Daniel in the lion's den. You would be surprised how many are getting saved. One taxi cabber in Tehran in one day had three different passengers trying to share Jesus with them. In Pakistan, they have these jamats, these small groups. They're getting saved by the thousands. We have, you may not know this, but we have churches being planted amongst the Afghani people. I will not tell you where because this is being recorded. But they're coming to Jesus. God is doing a work. But God is out to win. He's not out to lose. Well, Bob, don't you know about, who cares? Don't you know people might get hurt? Who cares? Don't you know there might be martyrs? Who cares? That's going to be sad and be a horrible funeral and you know, I'm going to be crying, but we'll get over it. We'll move on. We'll move on. There'll be some casualties. There's going to be some setbacks. There's going to be some disillusionment. There's going to be some opposition. There's going to be some, some resistance, but he's still building his church. We also need to know what creates revival will maintain revival. Revival has principles to it. God requires, we read it out of Psalm 15, Psalm 24, that we consecrate ourselves and be wholly separated to him. Now we don't tie in that to legalism or taboo or asceticism, but we're tying it to a heartfelt commitment to what the Bible says is true and what it is to truly love Jesus with all our heart. He requires us to pray. We got another Pursue God prayer thing coming. Remember? You know, no, we don't. We're taking December off, but we're coming and we're hitting fasting hard in January. Come on, we, we got to become people of prayer. We obviously have to become people of faith. You know, Dennis Balcom in China says he's lived in a constant state of revival since the 1970s. And when Dennis was here and he shared, I mean, it was like he was lived on another planet. He had a perspective like no one else. He had a, 
He had stories that just seemed from another world because he went from our dimension into God's dimension and saw heaven on earth. Well, we gotta, we gotta know that what creates revival will maintain it and the church can be strong. The fifth thing and the last is that faith will overcome the world. Habakkuk said this, but the righteous shall live by, by his faith. Come on, faith. John said it this way. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You've got to have faith that God's good. We sang it today. You've got to have faith that God has given us his son, which he did, and he opened up heaven, and he released the armies of heaven to start touching the church and guiding the church to reach the ends of the earth. That God is watching over his word to perform it. That God is out in your personal life to fulfill a plan. That God is out to fulfill a plan in the church. And the church is called to greatness. And the church is called to influence. The church is called to be the salt and the light of the earth. Let there be casualties. Let there be war. Let persecution come. doesn't matter. We're called to be the church. We're called to be the church. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And I'm going to go on record here. That's what I believe. I'm signing the dotted line that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's going to bring victory.